years ago when we bought my mother a new smartphone for her to use. We taught her how to use it. We showed her how powerful this new smartphone was. It could do so many things that her old keypad phone could not do. For the first few weeks, she kept asking for people's phone numbers. I assumed that she was perhaps programming it into her new smartphone. She asked for my number and the number of all of my friends and our family members, and I gave it to her. A few months later, she called me and again asked for my phone number again. I asked her, Mom, why do you need it? Did you get a new phone? She said, no. I lost the notebook that I had written down all my phone numbers. I said, didn't you save it in your smartphone? And she turned to me and she said, you mean you can do that with this phone? And we had to teach her again how to save numbers on her smartphone. I smile when I think about that incident. Here she had in her hands something brand new, a, a huge upgrade to what she had before. But sadly, she did not change the way she lived her life. Still relying on the pen and paper to keep her phone numbers. When you have something new and revolutionary in your life, there is an expectation, a responsibility, you can say, to change. And so it is in the Christian life. When you and I place our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we have a new life in Him. There is an expectation, there is a responsibility for you and I to change. Now, what is the responsibility of a new life in Christ? That's what we want to take a look at this morning. And so we continue our study in the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, as we take a look at verses 13 to 25. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. In this section, the Apostle Peter will highlight under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit three life changes that need to occur for those who have a new life in Jesus Christ. These three things must characterize your new life in Jesus. Now, there are other characteristics of the new life spoken of in the Scriptures, but Peter highlights three here in this section. The first characteristic can be found in verses 13 to 16. Look with me in verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind... Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter begins by challenging us to take control of our minds. Take control of your thought life, which will determine how you live your life. Your mind controls your body. And so Peter challenges us to gird up the loins of your mind, to prepare, take control, take charge. 
of how you live this life. Determine, have some convictions to live your life in a very different way. I know it's very hard to force people to change, just like it was very difficult to get my mother to upgrade from an old keypad phone to a smartphone. Change is difficult. She had to be determined of mind to make that change. And one of the reasons was so that she could talk through FaceTime with her grandkids. We are to gird up the loins of our minds. We are to take charge of our mind. We are to determine and have convictions with regard to an area of change. To do what? Verse 14 to 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, we don't have to be scholars of the Bible to understand what Peter wants us to change our minds about. It is repeated many times in verses 15 and 16. Be holy. When we have a new life in Jesus Christ, that life is to be characterized by holiness. That's number one of your taking notes. The responsibility of a new life in Christ is the responsibility of a life that is characterized by holiness. Now, in verse 14, there is a negative aspect. The Bible says in verse 14, Do not conform yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. This is the condition when you are an unbeliever, someone who is living in ignorance. You are no longer to lust after the things of the world. It's as simple as that. Peter does not give us a, a, a litany of list of things to do and not to do. He simply says... Do not conform yourselves to the former lusts. We are no longer to long for the things of this world. We are not to be attracted to our fleshly desires. And it begins with a conviction of mind. I will not seek after those things. I will seek after holiness. You know, the problem in the Christian life is oftentimes we know we know and have the knowledge that fleshly things are not consistent with godly living. And the pursuit of the world is not consistent with godly living. Except many of us act as if we didn't know. You mean we're not supposed to steal? I never knew that. You mean we're not supposed to lie? You mean we're not supposed to cheat? When we're caught, it's as if we didn't know or we pretend we didn't know. It's like me as I'm on this diet. As some of you know, I'm aiming to lose 40 pounds by the time I hit 40 next January. Now, I don't have any health issues that I know of. It's simply because I'm too cheap to buy new clothes, a new belt, new pants. It's expensive and things are getting tight. So while I'm on this diet, for sure I will be offered, for example, soda, soft drink. And I do this a lot of times. I act in ignorance. I pretend that it's good for me. 
I know there's a ton of sugar in that little can. That's why it's called a sugary drink. But I pretend not to know. I justify in my mind, well, it helps me digest this food I'm eating. And that goes the same with junk food or any processed food. It can't be bad if it tastes so good. But that's a matter of my mind. Saying that what is bad for me, I say it's good or I plead ignorance. So too, magnified in the spiritual life. We know that there are things that we, having new lives in Christ, should not pursue. But we have not girded our minds. We have not determined. We do not have the conviction to leave those former things to pursue what God calls us to pursue. The positive aspect of this is in verses 14 to 17. We are to be holy, the Bible says. Why? Because God is holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And this doesn't simply pertain to sexual conduct, which we often equate holiness with. Holiness is a part of all of our dealings, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our dealings with others. We are to become holy. Why? Because God is holy. It is as simple as that. We've been set apart in our new life, apart from sin, to be set, to be in fellowship with God who is holy, and therefore we should strive for purity. Holiness should mark and characterize a new life in Christ. We often equate holiness with something that is a pie in the sky that we need to try to grab for. And because we can't grab on to holiness or we can't reach it, then we give up. There's, there's no use trying to live out the holy life. I want to change your concept here because holiness is not a pie pie in the sky goal. Holiness is a part of who you are. The Bible tells us when we are in Christ, in our new life, holiness characterizes the very person of a Christian. Be holy, for I am holy. It is essential that it characterizes the very person we are. I like what John Brown, a 19th century Scottish theologian, says about holiness in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. I like that. Holiness is thinking as God thinks. Girding up our minds, conforming our minds to living our lives as God desires it. Pursuing what He pursues. Thinking as He thinks. In verse 16, Peter references Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 to 45. Be holy, for I am holy, repeated in the Old Testament and now here in the New Testament. And here is what Peter is saying here. You belong to God now. 
you are to imitate Him. And if God is holy, then you are to imitate in His holiness. It is the fellowship that a new believer, it is the fellowship that a new life in Christ calls us to. It is a responsibility. Here's how I equate this in my mind. There are times in the afternoon when my children uh, have been playing. They are hot. They are sweaty. They are dirty. They are muddy. They are soiled. And they come home about the same time I come home. And they want to give me a big hug. But I'm in my clean, pressed barong. And here they are, Daddy! And I look at them with their arms open. And they are sweaty and they are sticky. They are dirty. They are soiled. And I just stick out my hands. Don't come any closer. Children, I love you very much. But you need to go and take a shower and change clothes. And when you have cleaned yourself up, then Daddy would be very happy to give you a big, big hug. Here we are as Christians. Arms wide open in the dirtiness of our sinful life and saying, God, why don't you want to fellowship with me? I'm here. Take me as I am. God says, be holy, for I am holy. And when you have exhibited holiness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, then you can come and I will give you a heavenly father hug. And we will be in intimate fellowship. My friends, this is our responsibility as so-called followers of Jesus Christ. This is what needs to change in our life. This is the new life we have in Him. That newness comes with a very different way of thinking. To gird up our minds to say, I want to live marked by holiness. Note there is no please. Please be holy because I'm holy. It is a command. It is an imperative. Be holy. It is a state of who you are. Pursuing what God pursues. Thinking as God thinks. That's holiness. The second characteristic of a new life in Christ is found in verses 17 to 21. Look with me in verse 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now Peter continues here in verse 17... And tells us that our standing before the Heavenly Father is as His child. That's why we call Him Father. And if you call Him Father, and that's a first class conditional in the Greek that can be translated. And since you call Him Father, and you are His child, the Father does something to His children. Verse 17. He assesses our life without partiality. He looks at our life, and He judges very fairly. He will take an accounting of your life, an assessment. And friends, don't forget that. Even though we are Christians, God will assess our lives. When we meet Him face to face, 
And knowing that He is assessing our lives, we are to conduct ourselves in a very special way. You know, if only we slowed down and read the Scriptures and took it phrase by phrase. It's right there, verse 17. And since you call Him Father, and He judges you, look at that word, conduct yourselves. This is how then you shall live in a very special way. And that conduct at the end of verse 17 for one who has a new life in Jesus Christ is to conduct yourself in the fear of God. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay while you are living on earth in fear, in the fear of God. And let me put, that, put this into one word. We call this reverence. Reverence. You see, the second characteristic for one who has a new life in Christ is the responsibility of having a new life characterized by reverence. A new life characterized by reverence. Now, if I were to explain reverence to a previous generation, I would say something like this. Just as you respect and honor and revere the elderly and your parents to a greater extent, that's how you need to treat God. But here's the problem of our generation of why I can't say that. Because this is a generation, sadly, that no longer respects their parents. This is a generation that no longer respects the elderly. And that is a sad state of affairs. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks in chapter 3. But can I note also that parents are a bit to blame of why the generation thinks like this as well. Many parents, as I see it through my own lenses, do not act and do not deserve the respect and honor their children should give. I've said this many a times. Respect is earned. It cannot be demanded. Respect is earned. It cannot be demanded. And sadly, there are many parents who do not act like parents. They have not taken the mantle of the responsibility of parenthood. And no wonder their children do not respect them. That's a wake-up call to parents as well. And we'll explore this also in a few weeks in chapter 3 of this book. But in this generation, there's a drop-off in the reverence of our elderlies and our parents. And therefore, naturally, there's a drop-off in the reverence of our Heavenly Father. But when we know that there is one who will assess our lives, who is essentially our, our eternal boss, then we better cultivate an attitude of respect and reverence in the fear of God. We need to show reverence to God and to the things of God. We need to show Him honor in how we come to worship, how we come to this place. We show reverence when we carry His name to our family and to our spheres of influences and friends. That is our responsibility when we carry the name of Jesus. We are to revere Him. We are to fear Him. We are to honor Him in how we act in this world. You see, reverence isn't just coming to church and sitting there as you're sitting very quietly in worshipful reverence. It's much more. It extends into the very way we live our lives when we fear Him, 
It changes the way we live. We live our lives because we honor God by not breaking the rules He has set through the Scriptures. We live because we know that God is taking account of our lives. We live our lives because He is deserving of it. And since you call Him Father, He is worthy of our reverence. The Almighty God, the Creator God, the Sovereign, Omnipotent, Omniscient, Omnipresent God. It is an amazing thing that many of us in this generation take Him so lightly. The new life we have carries with it a responsibility to revere God. But in verses 18 and 19, Peter continues, and he tells us not only does God deserve it, but he did something for why we should continue to honor him. Verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter reminds the readers and he reminds us that we were bought with a price. And what was the price? The price of the very life of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, who know how he's characterized in verse 19, a lamb without blemish. Jesus Christ did not have to die. Jesus Christ was not deserving to have the sins of the world placed upon him, and yet he did. And he stood in our place. We may have received salvation for free, but salvation was not cheap. Salvation was very costly, not for you, but for God himself. And he paid with his own life, the life of his son. Do you treasure it? Do you acknowledge the heavy price that was paid so that you and I can have eternal life? There are times here at church we make you pay for something. It's a minimal amount, but we make you pay for it, even though we probably could have given it to you for free, because we understand human nature. Human nature says that if you get something for free, you don't treasure it. You don't take it seriously. But if you have to pay for it, even if it's 20 pesos, if it costs you something, you will value it. You will take care of it. Now, with that in mind, think about the fact that you were bought with the ultimate price of someone's life. Will you pay honor and reverence and respect to the one who sent his own son to die for you? We don't think like that, do we? For the one who died in our place, we have a very odd way of showing our appreciation. You know how we show our appreciation to God for the sending of His Son to die for us? We forget Him. We reject Him. 
Imagine if you needed a heart transplant. If you imagine you needed a liver or a kidney or eye or whatever else can be transplanted in today's modern day medicine. And a donor gives it to you. And you are the recipient of another person's heart, liver, kidney, eye, skin, face, whatever. You would be an eternal appreciation. You would wake up every morning thinking about him or her, the donor, who has enabled you to live this life. And if that person was still alive, I am sure that whatever celebration you had, whatever family gathering that you have, you would invite that person because in many ways that person is now family. The reason you are living is because of that person. But how come to the one who gave you his life and it cost him his very own, we disregard so easily and we forget? And can I say this harshly, but it's true sometimes. We treat him like trash. That is something you and I need to go home and really think about. That was Peter's point. Honor him. Because this is what he's done. Verse 20 to 21. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. My friends, salvation was not some afterthought of God. God didn't say, oh no, Adam and Eve sinned, they ate of the fruit. How should I remedy this situation? The Bible tells us that before the creation of this world, God foreordained it that he would save you. That's the end of verse 20. The preposition, for you. Verse 21, so that your faith and your hope are in God. It's about you. Salvation. The wonderful gift from God foreordained, planned for the creation of this world, even of you, was for you. When I think about that, I can't help but to praise God and honor Him. If you've ever been to Europe or have the opportunity one day to go to Europe, you'll find that all throughout Europe in every major city is a large cathedral. And if you don't get a chance to go to uh, a European cathedral, you can go to the basilicas we have here. You will notice one thing that characterizes all of these buildings. They are huge. And if this was a real word, I could say they are, they are ginormous. I remember many a times when I walked into these cathedrals, whether in Notre Dame or in Chartres or wherever else, one word whether it came out of my mouth, but I was thinking it was I walked in. Wow. Wow. Now, if you're a very practical person, you'd walk into this building and say, well, this building isn't very practical, is it? Look how they have such high ceilings. It's bad for insulation. 
He could seat a lot more people if they built a second row or second floor. But that wasn't the point of these oftentimes Renaissance architectures, architects. They built them big so that when a person walks in, they would elicit that reaction, wow! Because I'm at a place of worship that the wow factor of worshiping the great God needs to be there. And here's the second thought when you walk into these large cathedrals. Boy, I'm really tiny. I'm really small. And that's the attitude we have. I walk in because I'm worshiping a big God, an almighty God. And I am so small that I must come in humility. Somehow we've lost that in our generation. Now, please, I'm not advocating for a larger physical building. But often when we stroll into church, I wonder if this is your attitude. When I come to church, or when you come to church, do you have as your attitude, well, I'm here. I'm here. The church should be glad that I am here. Now, you never vocalize that openly, but that's how a lot of people think. You've been trying to get me to come every week, every year. Well, I'm here now. Are you happy? So I'm just going to sit here and you make me happy. At least I'm here. My attendance has been checked. Lost is the notion of a person coming in and seeing the worship of God as a privilege. How many of you come to this place and think that it is a privilege to be here? Not at grace, but privilege to worship an almighty God. Privilege to learn from the living word of God. We've lost that in our generation. There is no longer any wow factor because we think ourselves so high and mighty that often our head is too big for this building. My friends, we have a responsibility for reverence and fearing of God in a new life. In these past 10 years of pastoring this church, I have always debated in my mind whether we should have some rules of decorum in the church. I've seen restaurants and companies would have signs in front that says something like, you know, no slippers, no sando, no service. So, well, that'd, that'd be a great sign to put up in our front of our church. And I really struggled with that. You know, it'd be great. I, I can think of a hundred creative rules for how we can have decorum in this church. You know, we could split one side all ladies, one side all guys. We could have all the young people sit in the front, all the older ones sit in the back. There's a lot of things. We can make all the latecomers stand in the back and not sit. I'll get you to come early. A lot of rules. But we have never implemented any of them. Why? Because more and more I've come to the conviction 
that reverence doesn't come from rules. It comes out of a heart condition in our walk with God. Reverence doesn't come from rules we set. Reverence comes out of a heart condition in our walk with God. We could have rules that says you've got to sit from the beginning to the end. Do not get up for any reason. Sit quietly there. Do not laugh at anything. And try to elicit, manufacture reverence. It won't come. It doesn't come from the rules we set. It comes out of a heart condition in our walk with God. When I can come into a place of worship and I can say, wow, God, wow. I have the privilege and the honor of worshiping the one who has died in my place. And that same reverence can happen when you begin the day as you open up the word of God. That you say to yourself, I have the privilege of looking into the word of God, the very God who died for me and has words of wisdom for how I am to live. And whenever we come to a time of prayer, it's not simply a perfunctory, thanks God for the food so that I don't die of poisoning. It's the reverence that says, what a privilege to be able to bring my words, whether spoken or unspoken, to the very throne of grace, enabled by the intercession of Jesus Christ through His shed blood, that my words reach before the very throne of God. What a privilege, what a privilege it is to pray. You see, reverence isn't a church service. It is not exhibited only on a Sunday morning. Reverence permeates every aspect of how I live my life. And that is a responsibility that God calls us to live in a new life with Him. Verse 22 to 23. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and its flowers falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Let's jump down to verse 23 to 25 and then we'll come back to 22. Peter reminds us in verses 23 to 25 that there is no substitute to the word of God. Everything fades away and here Peter references Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 to 8. He notes the transient nature of everything on this earth. All flesh is as grass. The glory of men will wither as the grass, the flowers, falls away. But the word of God never fades. It endures forever. And that is why we preach unapologetically the word of God. The word of God does not change. Because God himself does not change. And so although our culture and our understanding of culture changes, what God says in the scriptures never gets outdated. Don't you ever forget that. 
even though the world is pulling us to a different direction culturally, we need to plant ourselves firmly, foundationally in the Word of God. This is where we get our spiritual authority. My friends, I admit to you, I have no authority over you. I simply but have a title. But my spiritual authority comes from the preaching of the living Word of God. Whenever I leave the Word of God, then I have no authority to tell you how you need to live your life. The Word of God never falls away. It endures forever. Can I just simply say a side note here? If any of you ever plan to move away, not from the church, but when you move to another city or perhaps another country, you emigrate out, and you were looking for a church community, can you please find a church that teaches the Word of God and teaches the Word of God systematically? Not taking the preacher's idea and jumping all over the Scriptures to try to prove his point. Find a church that teaches faithfully the Word of God as we strive to do here. You may go and be attracted to a church that has great music. You may go to a church that has wonderful fellowship or a church that's full of young people. But at its core, make sure that that church teaches the Word of God because it is the Word of God that endures forever. And Peter says in verse 23 that the Word of God is truth. That's how you receive salvation. And therefore, what I'm going to say in verse 22 is not an option. It is a command. Since you have purified your soul in obeying the truth through the Spirit, since you have a new life in Jesus Christ, what are you to do? Verse 22, you are to love one another fervently with a pure heart. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. And here's where we get our third characteristic. The third characteristic, number three, is this. A new life characterized by love for others. A new life that is characterized by a love for others. This is our responsibility. We've gone from a focus on the responsibility we have towards God, which is holiness and reverence, and now we are shifting our attention to how we treat others in the newness of life we have in Jesus Christ. We are to love one another. Our lives must be characterized by love for others. Now, we often pay simply lip service to love because I love everyone. Do you love everyone? Yes, that's the right answer. Look what the Bible says. You are to love fervently with a pure heart, meaning a great desire, a proactive desire to love upon people. And with the purity of heart, meaning no ulterior motives, you love them not because you can get something out of them. You love them because they are people. And you love them because God loves them. And you love them because God saw fit to shed the blood of His Son for them just as much as He died for you. And so you begin to look through the lenses that God looks through. And if God loves them, so you love them as well. It doesn't matter the color of skin. It doesn't matter the ethnic background. It doesn't matter the social economic level. Each person is created in the Imago Dei. They are created in the image of God. 
and is so loved dearly by God that He sent His Son to die for them just as much as He died for you. If you really think through the implications of this, it will change your life. Racism has no place in the Christian life. So please be careful, my friends, in how you address your house helper and those who work for you. Because even in how you term them, it shows a lot about how much you value them. Do we show compassion for people? Do we empathize with them and sympathize with them when they need it? The Bible says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. I know it's tough to do because we have a tendency here living in the Philippines in our Asian mentality. We're good at disassociating. We're good at compartmentalizing our lives. We have often been desensitized. Let me give you an example. This week, as you know, was the junior's retreat for the school. And so I went to go speak, and I drove to Word of Life in Kalawan Laguna. And if you have to go to Kalawan Laguna, you have to pass by some very provincial roads. And so I came upon a little village on this provincial road on the way to Word of Life. And as I was driving, someone stopped me. wonder why they would stop me. But then I saw on the other side, they were stopping the oncoming traffic. So I had a front view of what was going to happen. That was the car, the first car they stopped. And to my surprise, on this two-lane highway, this village community came out onto the road. And they were doing something. Now, in my 10 years here in the Philippines, I'd never seen this before in my life. And I don't think I ever want to see it again. They all came this village, they came to this provincial road and they were there to kill the community pig. This was probably a four, five hundred pound pig. It was a large pig. They could feed the community, I think. They must have been celebrating some special occasion. And there, right in front of me, through very, shall we say, primitive means, were trying to kill this pig. I'm not going to describe what I saw, but I could hear the squealing of the pig through my closed windows with the radio on. I'm glad my kids were not there. For that moment, while they were killing that pig, I actually felt sorry for that pig. And for that moment... I said to myself, you know what? If that's how they kill pigs, I don't think I want to eat pork anymore. Well, then that night, guess what I had? I actually had pork chop. How could I eat that pork chop when I'd seen how they'd killed that pig a few hours ago? I was able to enjoy that pork chop without batting an eye. It was good. Because I had disassociated myself with what had happened. I had, I had forced myself to forget how that pig 
would get to my plate. And that's what we do, unfortunately, with people. We disassociated ourselves from seeing people as God sees them, as created in His image. And so if they go through problems, it is of no concern to us because that's not my problem. But the new life we have in Christ puts into our lives something very earth-shattering. A concept that we are to love one another fervently with a pure heart. We can plead ignorance. We can pretend we don't see what is happening around us. But then we are not holding on to our responsibilities. My friends, the people you are sitting next to, you may not know them, to your left and to your right, in front of you and behind you. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not some sort of nebulous, pie-in-the-sky theological concept. This is the truth of the matter. We are really brothers and sisters in Christ. How then will you live? Is your life characterized by love for one another? This is your responsibility. This is mine. I end with this story. story told by the Christian author Max Lucado. It tells a parable that was relayed to him by someone whom he met on an airline flight. In this parable, there was a CEO, a boss, a, a chairman of the board. He had an office on the top floor of a New York City skyscraper. Most people that worked in his office never saw him, but they met his daughter, who worked in the same building for her father. Unfortunately, this boss's daughter, the CEO's daughter, exploited her family position by making demands on people. She would order the guard at the front door to go down the street and buy her a sandwich. Reluctantly, the guard would have to leave his post and do what he, as he's told because that's the boss's daughter. While he's getting the sandwich... He's thinking, if, if the daughter is so bossy, what does that say about her father? The daughter next encounters a secretary who is carrying an armload of paper. Stopping her, she would order her to forget her project, forget what she was doing, and instead come and clean my office. What could the secretary do? This, after all, is the boss's daughter. And since this is the, daughter's, the boss's daughter... What choice does she have? The daughter goes throughout her day behaving in this irritating, demanding way. She never uses the name of her father. She never name drops to order people around. But everyone knew that she was the boss's daughter. And the connection is obvious. If she is like that, bossy and irritating and demanding, what does that say about her father? Now, suppose the daughter undergoes a change of behavior. Suppose instead of ordering the guard to get her a sandwich, she brings the guard one. Instead of ordering the secretary to interrupt what she's doing, instead she helps the secretary. 
She begins to express concern for the families of these employees, bringing them coffee and generally greeting everyone in a spirit of concern and kindness. Although she does not use the name of her father, now the people are saying, if the daughter is so kind, what must the father be like? As Lucado points out, they've not seen him, they've not met him, but they know his child, so they know his heart. In the same way, the unbelieving world in which we live, in their unbelief, do not see the Heavenly Father. But they see us, and they know that we are children of His. What inference will they have of the Father when they look at the life that we have lived? It is time, my friends, to own up. It is time to take up the responsibility you and I have to live a life of holiness, of reverence, and of loving one another because we all have a new life in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this time of quiet, thank you for reminding me of these characteristics of what marks my life as one who is a follower of you. I pray this morning that the men and women here also feel a compelling conviction from the Holy Spirit to live their lives characterized by holiness, the fear of God, and loving one another. I failed in many of these cases. And for that, I ask for your forgiveness. Because for the one who died in my place, I do at times, even as a pastor, treat you like trash. But I want to treat you as the one who is worthy of all worship and adoration that comes in the everyday living of my life. Change our men and women here this morning that they may become more Christ-like so that the world will know about how amazing you are when they look at our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.